prayer is really in right now, believe it or not. Um, it's actually bigger than the Eras tour, which I couldn't afford. I'm a little jealous if you could. That's amazing. Um, a recent study um, of just a year ago or so um, showed that more than half of U.S. adults pray every single day. I was shocked by that. Half of the people in our country pray daily. And it's been scientifically proven, um, a study came out around 15 years ago that showed that the effects of prayer on things like depression and anxiety um, um, really lowered in the group that's, that prayed for one another in small groups. That the, the rates of depression and anxiety um, and the feelings of optimism and even happiness and joy increased significantly compared to the control group, which had no prayer sessions. Um, I was pretty fascinated by that. Uh, prayer, it turns out, is, is actually really good for us. Um, but prayer can easily become something like a life hack. Just another life hack, like taking magnesium or something. <laughs> and it can become about as interesting as that, right? Just, I just need to sleep better, or I just need to feel better, so therefore I'm going to pray a little bit. And look, sometimes that's all we can muster, and that's okay. But God intends so much more for our engagement with him in prayer. We're going to take the next several months, we just started a couple weeks ago, um, to form more of a biblical theology of prayer. And it's all about, it turns out that it's all about practicing the presence of God. That's what we're sort of trying to summarize. What is prayer? It's practicing the presence of a God that Chip just described a God of grace and love and mercy. And so we want to develop that and, and to become a more prayerful church, to become a praying church. That really is our desire in this series of going through different prayers throughout the scriptures. To catch you up, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Patrick started in Genesis chapter 3 with the first recorded prayer in the Bible. And it happens after the fall of humanity. And God comes to them and says, where are you why are you hiding from me? And Patrick's big um, theme there through Flannery O'Connor was that our frailty, our limitations often threaten to block our view of God. And what Patrick encouraged us to do is not to let our frailty block our view, but instead to pray those frailties back to him, to own up as Chip was just describing, own up to our limitations, own up to our imperfections, for that's the kind of person that God wants to come and be with, the imperfect one, the one who needs help. That's the one he loves to show his mercy and grace to. So we pray those limitations back to him. And then last week from Psalm 1, from the Bible's prayer book, um, we learned about meditation, the power of giving our attention to God. Because everybody, every time we give our attention to something, every time we meditate on something, it's because we have this view of the good life. And that thing we're meditating on promises in some way, shape, or form to give us that good life we hope for. But actually, it's only in meditating and dwelling upon Jesus that we, give, we receive the good that God promises to us in Christ. And today, we're going to turn to another uh, one of the Psalms in the Bible's prayer book. And from Psalm 27, we see that God is out to first restore us, 
I'm going to explain that, to reclaim connection with us in prayer and to rekindle a praying life, if that's something you need today, to rekindle a life of dialogue with him. And so with all that said, I wonder um, if you might stand with me as we read from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. And you may be seated. Uh, Lord, we desire to be a more praying church because we desire to know you more. We desire to know a God like this. And so, Lord, come and use even me to speak to these, your people. I pray that you would remind them just how loved they are in Christ. And Lord, that we would have an encounter with you this morning that would mark us. And not just for one day, but to develop a life of being in relationship and in dialogue with you. Lord, that is your intention for us. And so come, Holy Spirit, and do the work only you can do. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, Prayer as seeking God's face from Psalm 27, the first thing we want to look at is God is out to restore us. Uh, some of the most desperate prayers I've ever heard have happened around the dinner table, uh, depending on how hangry we are. Um, at least in my family, we get, we get crazy. Lord, and that's about it. That's about all we can muster. But it's kind of this primal scream, right, of, of anger. Now, um, one of my favorite all-time movies is Meet the Parents, all-time comedies. Anybody else? Okay, no, nobody else. That's all right. Um, but if you've seen it, you remember this scene uh, in which an amazing, uh, really cringy prayer happens. Let's watch this. Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well, uh, Greg's Jewish dad. You know that. 
You're telling me the Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 I'd love to. Pam, come on, it's not like I'm a rabbi or something. I said grace and many a dinner table. Oh, dear God, thank you. You are such a good God to us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh, sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the Smorgasbord, you have so aptly lain at our table this day, and each day, by day, day by day, by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things we pray. To love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day, by day. Amen. Amen. Oh, Greg, that was lovely. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. <laughs> um, wow. I felt weird watching that in church, but it's okay. Um... I think that actually shows us pr something very profound about prayer, that all prayer, no matter how cringy, comes from a story. It happens out of a story. And his story, Ben Stiller's character, is I'm trying to impress my girlfriend's parents, especially De Niro. Could you imagine? Praying in front of De Niro? Well, he's trying to impress them. And so he's nervous, and he's just trying to fumble through this amazing poem while he's a poet. Um, but he's teaching us something that Eugene Peterson uh, says very clearly. He says, all prayer is prayed in a story by someone who is in a story. There are no storyless prayers. Stories is to prayer what the body is to the soul, the circumstances in which it takes place. And prayer is to the story what the soul is to the body, the life without which it would be a corpse. And so Psalm 22 uh, also emerges from a story. Let's look back at verses one through three. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. So we don't know the exact occasion of this prayer. Some of the Psalms have like a superscript in front of it that say this was prayed in a cave or this was prayed by David when blah, blah, blah. But this one doesn't have that. But we can sort of guess that David was either literally or metaphorically surrounded by an army, which happened throughout his life. He was a soldier. He was a general. We also know that David was hunted down by King Saul and, and later in his life by his son Absalom. And so he would have been all too familiar with feeling surrounded by enemies. Um, in verse 2, he prays that people, he says that people were out to devour him. Um, he prays later in the, in the psalm um, that his parents had forsaken him. 
and that adversaries and false witnesses were threatening him. And all of those things that he names in verses 2 and following are part of his storyline. They're part of the story that he prays out of. But David's prayer begins with none of those things. David's prayer begins with something else. It starts with God. And he prays within a story of what God has done and who God is to him, that he is my light and my salvation. This is why in the midst of all the chaos that was surrounding his life, he could have confidence. So our prayers and really our courage in the face of the the. the Chaos of life is only as strong as the story from which we pray. This is what David is teaching us. Uh, when my mom was di- diagnosed with lymphoma about a year ago, um, so many fears and anxieties um, flooded into my brain, into my heart, into my body. Um, but something that someone said to me uh, during the early stages of that was, don't write the story before it's written. Don't write the story. Don't get ahead of the story, Andrew. And so instead, I needed to do what David did and to tap into a greater story. There's a greater story than my mom's health or than your health or some, your loved one's health. There's a greater story than even those things, as important as those things are to us, as important as those people are. There's someone who is more important, and he is our light and our salvation despite everything. So God and his grace apply personally to his story, and this produces a confidence and courage in God, even when things are going sideways and breaking down. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he said this, before you utter a a request, before you confess a sin, before you pray for the need of another, before you ask for deliverance or protection of any kind, before any of that, Make sure that you remember who it is that you're praying to and the story that you're living within. Because as you do, your prayers will be redefined and your living will be redefined. So prayer reveals the story that we're living in, like maybe nothing else. And simply put, prayer is speaking to God within the story of the gospel. It's a very simple definition. Prayer is speaking with God within the story of the gospel, the story that he's writing and has written in Christ. And so let's restory our prayers. There's more to your story than the difficulties you're in, the ailments, the burdens. There's more to it than that. And so we want to restory our prayers because when we do, we reclaim connection with him. And that's what we're going to get into next, reclaiming connection in our prayer. Uh, Lately, I've been listening to an amazing podcast that I want to recommend to you all called Being Human. It's put on by Christianity Today. And Steve Cuss is an author and pastor, and he's a former uh, trauma chaplain. And he talks about his tendency to be God-sized rather than human-sized. And for instance, when when he walks into a room, he just admits this. He walks into a room as a pastor, as a chaplain, of some kind, he walks into a room and he feels this burden that it's my job to figure out how to make everybody okay. And if there's conflict in the room, especially, he's like, it's, I need to 
fix this. I need to make sure they're all right and get them better. And what that lie does, that it's my job, it's my job to fix everything that's wrong in this room or in a space or in a relationship, that lie, he calls it, he says it causes reactivity. Reactivity. And it's this anxiousness, this worry that disconnects him from other people. And it's nothing that I struggle with at all. Um, and probably you don't either, but I kept listening. I kept listening because I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about this. Steve Cuss, he went on to share about his training in systems theory. And so I want, and how it maps on to Christian discipleship. So bear with me. I made a little diagram so you can kind of follow along. I want you to stay with me here. He basically says that when we believe lies, when we have false assumptions about another person or about ourselves, we are prone to reactivity towards others. Anxiousness, fear, worry, anger, you name it. Reactivity based on a false assumption which breaks connection with other people. And then he says we can get stuck in this rut for years, some of us for decades. We can get stuck in the cycle of reactivity based on false assumptions about another person or about ourselves. For instance, this happens a lot when I'm driving. Um, I'm on 26, and every time I'm about to exit, I'm like, there won't be traffic today. See, this is a false assumption. (laughs) And I'm a pastor, so I'm not waving any particular fingers out the window, but my heart, in my heart, I might be. A little bit. Please forgive me, Lord. Um, Based on a lie, we react, and it breaks connection with other people. But let me give you a little bit more um, recent example. A good friend and I were planning something together, and I realized that I had made a mistake in the plan, and I forgot about something, maybe a couple of things. (laughs) And I just overlooked a couple of things. And I, I just, it, it kind of, I realized that I started to get anxious when I realized this. I started to get afraid that here's my friend and I made a mistake. And I didn't like that. <laughs> I don't like making mistakes. And I was afraid that he wouldn't like it either. And maybe he wouldn't like me anymore. Because of that, see this assumption that I need to be perfect, that I can't make mistakes, made me anxious and fearful, that, and actually led to disconnection for a time. And then I called him up and I fessed up and I said, man, I, I made a mistake and I, I was afraid that, man, we wouldn't be friends anymore. Something crazy like that. And you know what he did? He said, you know what? You don't have to be perfect, Andrew. And he just said it like that. And I know that intellectually, but the way I operate so much of the time is on these false assumptions that I need to be God-sized rather than human-sized. Maybe you can relate to that. But here's the thing. Reactivity doesn't just happen in our relationships this way. And it can actually happen in our relationship with him, with God. When we believe false things about God or ourselves, We can get reactive with God, and we can be disconnected, feel disconnected from him. Let's look again at verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord, 
that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, you might be thinking, wow, this guy, this dude really likes church, and that's, that's a lot. Um, I don't want to be in church all the time either, um, so what's his deal? Why is he so obsessed with being in church, like, all the time? Is that what he's saying? Actually, he thinks something about God. And this thing that he thinks about God is that he is beautiful. And this is why being in his presence became his one thing. Being in his presence became his thing. David shows us that when you believe true things about God and his story, the story of the gospel, you want to be in his presence. You want to be around him. You want to be around people who want to be around him too. When you find him beautiful, you really, you realize who you are in light of that too. But you won't gaze, you won't behold when you're stuck in a lie about him or when you're stuck in a lie about yourself. The lie could be that he doesn't forgive all things. Maybe there's some secret sin in your life that if it came out, it would ruin you. And you've never really believed that that God's grace applies to even that part of your life that you've been hiding. Or maybe it's that Because of what happened to you, he doesn't truly love you. These are all lies that we can believe about God that break connection with God. One of the reasons why we don't like to pray is because of our view of God. So many of them are not true. Why do we care so much about the scriptures? Because we want, I want to, I want you and I want myself, I need this just as much as you, to believe true things about God. Because when we believe lies about God, it fuels reactivity to God, anger at him for the wrong reasons, disconnection, even um, apathy towards him, complacency towards him, blowing him off. Lies produce that. But truth produces what David did to say, I'm going to behold you in all of your beauty, in all of your glory, I can't get enough. That's what happens when we believe true things about God. And we cannot do this apart from his spirit. We all believe lies apart from his spirit. There's no one who seeks after God apart from his spirit. And so if you're seeking after him, thank him. Because it means that he's been seeking after you first. He loves you. He wants you. He wants to know you. He wants you to enjoy him forever. So God is out to reclaim something very important about prayer, that it's not first and foremost about your needs. It's not first and foremost about your desires, even if they are good. He does want to hear them, by the way. He is a good father. Nor is it primarily about confession of your sin. Yes, prayer does include that. It's all throughout the scriptures, But friends, prayer is primarily about connection. 
It's primarily about connecting with a God who loves you, who made you, and who saved you. That is what prayer is first and foremost about, that he pursues us when we're weak, he pursues us when we're frail, he pursues us when we're sinful to the brim, he pursues us still. This is why we can pursue him and desire to. Romans chapter 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the by the Son of God, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation produces joy, joy in His presence, joy to be with Him. Why did David sing? Why did David sing in the psalm and so many others? Why did Paul and Silas sing in prison in Acts chapter 16? They're locked to the wall through chains and they're singing hymns to God? It's the same reason we can. Because in Christ, because of who God is, because of what he's done, that he has scars in his hands, this is why we can sing in any circumstance, in any situation. Before Christ, I had to have approval. Before Christ, I had to have validation. I had to be okay with everyone. And yes, I still struggle with that, and maybe you do too, but I don't need it anymore. It's not a, it's not a necessity anymore because I already have been approved and validated, and so have you if you've placed your faith in Christ. So we don't have to be reactive with each other, and we don't have to be reactive with him. Am I good enough for you, Lord? Have I done enough for you, Lord? That's reactivity. That breaks connection. That makes us legalistic, as Chip was talking about. That makes religion, that makes church feel dry as a leaf in my yard right now. But when you know him, when you know that his cross applies to you and to your story, it changes everything. This word dwell also shows up in Hebrews chapter, or Hosea chapter 14. It says, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, and they shall flourish like the grain. When prayer centers on the God of the Bible, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and connection with this God through Christ by the Spirit, not just to get things from him. He, what is he saying? When we dwell in his presence, we flourish. We flourish. We may not get the things we want all the time, but we will get him. And this is why we flourish. Before in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's flourishing. And so prayer becomes, as Stephen Cuss says, relaxing into God. I love that. Prayer isn't just this anguishing thing. Yes, at times it is. But what if prayer was primarily a time of relaxing into his presence? The presence of the one who loves you gave himself for you. So David was no monk, right? It sounds like a monk, something a monk would say, relaxing in the God. David was no monk. David did not uh, build a wall between him and the world. No, he was very much engaged with a broken world, much like all of us. Very much engaged with the depravity of our world and our own lives, our own stories. But he was working to love God in a broken world, just like all of us. He was working, he was striving to love God in a broken world. And while prayer didn't always change his circumstances, and it won't always change yours or mine, he was changed in his presence. 
He became a different person. And so let's reclaim connection in prayer rather than being reactive to God based on faulty ideas about him or yourself. Let's pursue connection. Why? Because he pursued connection with you in the Gospels. This is why we can pursue him. But what if that fire, that fire for desiring the presence of God has gone out in your life? Maybe it might be through suffering. Again, it might be through sin in your life or shame in your life. I don't know what it is, but for many of you in this room, you're like, yeah, but I just don't, I, can't, I don't have the energy to muster up the strength to pursue him right now. And that's okay. Thank you for being honest with him. He wants you to be honest. Don't pretend with him. He cannot, he cannot change the pretend you. He can only change the real you. So be honest with him. But he wants to rekindle connection. He wants to rekindle communion with you today. And so that's the last thing we're going to look at. We must seek his face to rekindle prayer. Verse 8, you said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Now, I looked this up over 80 times in the Bible. God tells us to seek his face. 80 times. The command to seek his face, though, here is not just to David in the singular, but it's actually in the plural form. Seek my face is to us. We are called to seek the face of God. Why is face? Why is face? When we uh, are trying to get to know someone relationally, we don't look at the elbow when we're meeting them or the feet. And we don't stare at our own navel. That was, that was bad. Um, we, we look them in the eye because the face is the doorway to a person relationally. The face is the doorway to a person relationally speaking. And Tim Keller's book on prayer is really helpful on, on this point. I want to read a couple lines. He says this, to seek God's face is not to find some place in space where God is located. Rather, it is to have our hearts enabled by the Holy Spirit to sense his reality and presence. What does it mean to seek his face? It means to sense his reality, that he is here, that he loves you, that you're his. That's what it means to seek his face in prayer. So why do we avert our eyes from someone that we love or someone that loves us? Why would we avert our eyes? Why would we look down at the floor instead of looking them in the eye? It's when we feel embarrassed. It's when we feel ashamed. It could even be when we feel angry at a person. We can't look at them in the eyes. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you today when it comes to Jesus. You just can't bring yourself to lock eyes with him for one reason or another. Sin, shame, suffering can all distort our view of God's view of us. What, do, what in your mind is God's view of you personally? When he thinks about you, what happens to his face? Consider that. Our sin, our shame, our suffering can all distort our view of God's view of us. And this can keep us from seeking his face, his presence. And so we're content to sort of hobble through life, hobble through our prayers, rather than fully experiencing him and his abundant life now that he offers us now and forever. 
In Luke 13, there's a, a woman who had been afflicted by a disabling spirit for 18 years, it says. And Luke tells us that she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. And nothing had worked, and so she hobbled through life. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She was able to fully straighten up her body, and she glorified God. Now, this word fully, it shows up in only one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter 7, and it says this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost fully. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is he saying? How do we have the experience now that despite everything we're going through, everything we've gone through, everything that's happened to us, everything that we've done, everything that we haven't done, that we are fully saved? How do we have that experience? It's only in prayer. And friends, it's not merely your prayer that you feel the ramifications and enjoy the ramifications of the gospel. It's in Jesus' prayer for you. Jesus is praying that Andrew Kerhulis, with all my faults, will feel that I am loved by God today, would know the love of God today, and he is praying for you. What is Jesus doing up in heaven, by the way? You know, one of the things he's doing, he's praying for you. He's praying for you that the suffering that you're going through will not overshadow his love. That the sin that's hidden in your life would not rob you of experiencing the full joy of knowing Christ. He's praying for you so that you would fully know that you are fully saved. Always. This is what gives us courage and confidence. It doesn't change everything. We don't know why God doesn't answer every prayer. I wish he would. I wish he would tell us why. But someday we will know. But he gives us himself in the midst of it so we can have courage and confidence through anything. Keller again, because of his shed blood and forgiveness, we can have a nearness to God that was not possible before. Jesus' person and work is the breakthrough for any who want to draw near and to seek God's face. So we're going to do that now. We're going to pray. We're going to take some time in silent prayer. Um, and I want to try something that I hope you'll try when you leave here in your own time with Jesus. And that is to consider Jesus and what he looks like when he thinks about you. What happens to his face when he thinks about you? And so I've asked Molly to read some scriptures uh, kind of around some of these themes because, it's, again, it's so easy to believe lies about him, and, and that leads us to reactivity with God and disconnection. But we want to be reminded of what's true. So let's pray together. Let's close our eyes. Let's enter into a time of prayer I'm going to give you a few seconds here just to quiet your heart, to prayerfully seek his face, to seek and sense his reality and presence, that Jesus, you are here with us now. 
And I want you now in prayer to imagine prayerfully that you are standing before Jesus, that he's here with you in this room. Just take a moment to try to collect your thoughts. He has come and walked beside you and now he is standing in front of you. What does his face look like? Is he smiling? Is he indifferent? Is he severe? Is he disappointed? And I want you to notice how you feel before him. Do you feel his warmth and love? Do you see his smile because of the gospel? Sit with that for just a moment. Sit with him. What part of you does he want to heal to the uttermost? What lies need to be replaced with truth? Take a few more seconds and then we'll hear him speak now through his word. From Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. From Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep from a shepherd. From Matthew 14, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. From John 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. From 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, as I have been fully known. From 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he he appears, we shall be with him, because we shall be See him as he is. And from Revelation 1, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, 
I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Thank you, Molly. If the gospel isn't the story that we're living in, something else will take its place. And as we live out that narrative, it becomes apparent. And maybe that's you this week. It was definitely me at times. And we won't feel connected to God. And without the cross, we won't be connected to God. This is why we place our faith in him, so that we can have that communion with him, that relationship with him. In communion, we must first confess that these lesser stories that we've been living out are not as good as the one that he has offered to us in the gospel. We must own the damage that it's done in our lives and the damage it's done in our relationships. But then we must also hear again that in Christ, you have been forgiven, full pardon, and that it is finished.